HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate, producers of the most delicious bean-to-bar chocolates in Brooklyn. For more information, visit fineandraw.com. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love. All for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I'm confident they are all listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And today, I'm very excited. I say that every time, but I always am. It's always true. I'm very happy to have our guest in studio today. He's come from very far, from Tel Aviv, and... um, It was nice that we coincided with a Tuesday evening where he could be in studio for a live show. So I want to welcome Alon Chen. Is that correct? correct. Oh, okay, good. I'm glad I worked on it. Joining us, he is the CEO and co-founder of TasteWise, which is a very interesting AI data company that looks at food trends, at data to predict food trends. But before we get to that and why he's in town, we will do like we always do. We'll go around the shipping container and talk about apps. So, Alon, do you have an app that you like right now? And the only rule is that you cannot talk about an app that you own or have invested in. All right. Yeah, sure. So being a, an entrepreneur running around and talking to companies from all over the world, Zoom is my number one app. 
Un unfortunately, I haven't invested in it. <laughs> it made really well. <laughs> and it's one of these things, you know, video conferencing that it never works. You know, whenever you're trying to do a video conference, go on a you know, business meeting. I, ha I had a failed Zoom conference call not too long ago. Yeah. So Zoom is the most reliable And then, you know, as an ex-Google employee, I can say that Zoom is better. But yeah, definitely Zoom is my number one. It's working actually better on my phone than on my on my Mac, That's which is very surprising. Hmm. And it allows me to be always on the go and always be connected to my team and to my customers. So Zoom is my number one. Okay, Zoom. Now back in mission control, hiding very carefully in between that small space between the two plate glass windows, our engineer and the studio manager. Matt, how are you? I am excellent. I don't know how you managed to actually be in that perfect spot where it's, no one can you know, see you. It's just where I stand. <laughs> um, I'm more of a standing desk guy, so I don't like actually sitting here. Uh, you know. Okay. You well, that's good. One of the, the counter is high enough to be standing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have an app that you like for us this week? I can't remember. I don't think I shouted this out before. I definitely thought about it. But for the music makers out there, FL Studio, what does that mean? Uh, Fruity Loops is a desktop app for making music, and they have an incredible mobile version that I like quite a bit. So if I'm, in my, if I'm on the subway and I need to entertain myself, I just start making random, like, beats or atmospheric music on FL mobile. Fruity Loops. So at first I thought cereal, but now I get it because it's loops, loops, loops of music. Yep. Are you a music maker? I mean, not of the electronic variety normally, which is why it's fun to mess with it. Uh, I've played bass and whatnot uh, for a long time, but Do we need to do a show with you playing music? No. <laughs> Do we need to listen to some of your music in one of the shows? Still no. <laughs> Is there any you and music question that's going to get a yes? Mm, maybe. I don't know. I'm not <laughs> sure what it would be. I recently played at, uh, down at Jazz Fest. I got a buddy who plays at Jazz Fest in New Orleans, so I went up on stage with him to do some songs recently, but that was about, uh, that was about it. All right. Well, so maybe we need to figure something out. Every now and again, we do a show with the engineer because they all have a side hustle talent beyond engineering. That's usually somewhere in the music podcasting space. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Alan. Alan is here because it is the fancy food show in New York City. It actually ended today. It started on Sunday. It's an annual summer event. The... It used to be the National Association for Specialty Food, and I know that they changed the name. But it is probably the largest, or largest organization of specialty food manufacturers, and it is one of the biggest trade shows I've ever seen. It's two floors of the Javits Center. It's thousands and thousands of exhibitors from countries around the world, maybe not 150 countries, but probably close, exhibiting everything... Every possible food thing you can imagine, gelato, jam, olive oil, nuts, chips, snacks, jerkies, all of that. And Alan was here to give a talk. Were you a panel or were you just a talk yourself? It was a keynote. It was a keynote. Oh, so it was a fancy talk. It was an important talk. It was fun. That's the most important. About, so your talk was about data and AI and food trends. 
So tell us what, you know, people don't necessarily understand how data points connect to companies when they're trying to figure out what to make and how to tweak their food products. And TasteWise is interesting because you are looking at billions and billions of pieces of data that people generate when they're out there online. So tell us a little bit about how TasteWise works and then tell us about how you're using the AI to predict food trends. Sure. So TasteWise really helps food brands to understand how, how what is the data, what, what are the consumer insights that will help them develop new food products, food and beverage products, and also find the most optimal way to bring these products to market. So what are the claims? What are the marketing tactics? Where should we start? And TasteWise does that by leveraging vast amount of data points and uh, processing them with AI. So we currently have the largest data sets of restaurant menus in the US. So we're looking at 170,000 restaurants on a weekly basis to see what is happening on the menu, what is changing, what are chefs bringing uh, and mixing together that gets consumers very uh, excited. So those menus need to exist online somewhere. Yes, that's in, correct. In menu pages or a restaurant website yeah. or something like that. Anywhere. Actually, getting the menus is the easy part. Okay. Analyzing the menu is the challenging part. Because imagine we have thousands of different ingredients, of descriptors, of different ways of layouts of you know putting together the menu. And we need to understand and process the fact that a burger and a cheeseburger and a hamburger and a slider is the same thing and so on with any uh, every single ingredient so we can actually reflect the trend in a in a meaningful way but that's where we not where we stop so restaurant menus is one layer of data another layer is the billions of images and conversations that people are sharing online so food social is, media social media mm-hmm. so food has never been so documented ever before billions of of conversations every month in the US alone about eating and drinking and that allows a lot of insights into what people are doing, what are they eating, what gets them really excited, right? And on top of it, we also analyze recipes. So we have 2 million recipes, uh, more than 9 billion interactions with recipes to actually understand what is on people's top of mind when they're actually walking into their kitchen trying to solve a problem, fixing dinner for their kids, uh, maybe having you know, something to help them with their condition. Maybe they have a Crohn's disease or maybe they just need some something to give them energy. Nine billion interactions with recipes over the course of what period of time? That's correct. So nine billion uh, since um, we're looking at data for the past three years for recipes. So that's about a lot. Three billion a year. Yeah. So basically, when you when you think about it, there are so many recipes out there. But what's interesting is not the recipes. What's interesting is what which recipes actually people like and save and keep. And even more than that, one of the fastest rising recipes today is the cauliflower crust pizza, right? <laughs> Helping people, you know, stick to I've their low I've seen it even at Trader Joe in the frozen food section. Yeah, Trader is really good at catching up with the trends and really introducing the, the, the products as, as the trend is happening and, and capturing, you know, people's, you know... Um, interest. Interest. And so what's really um, important about recipes is what was the search query that led people to choose this cauliflower crust recipe. So it's not just the end result. It's not a cauliflower pizza crust recipe was downloaded 
a thousand times or clicked a thousand times or saved a thousand times. It's how did somebody get to the cauliflower recipe and why were they looking for it? You got it. Exactly. So getting, if you want to think about the future of any industry, uh, but in food and beverage specifically, you need to understand what was the motivation? What was the job to be done? What did the consumer or the person wanted to solve? Was it a quick dinner or was it comfort food that is compatible with keto or was it a low carb pizza? So the end result of being, you know, the cauliflower crust pizza is super important because people need to, you know, to eat something that's tasty. But understanding their motivation is what is so exciting and, and really can, can help you think about the future of your products. So what is the primary driver behind something like cauliflower pizza right now based on your information surveys? It's comfort food that is compatible with low-carbon ketogenic diet. Interesting. We were talking earlier just before the show, and apparently low-carbon keto diets are on the rise in terms of the queries and the interest that you're finding. Yes, that's correct. People love it, and, and especially in America, um, we were talking about it because the ketogenic diet allows you to keep eating fatty you know, products. American favorites. Yeah, American favorites. Bacon so burgers. Cream cheese <laughs> you know, is rising, running out of the shelves in stores. Um, and, you know, still make sure that your body gets what it needs. Um, and people just, you know, they, they need the comfort food and they need solutions. And you as a food brand, you really need to be there when they're looking for the, for the, for the next product or for fixing a problem. Like they want to sleep better at night. Should they have something with lavender and so on? So today when you gave your keynote, what were, the, what were some of the highlights what was the, some of the key messaging on, on your talk today for the specialty food crowd? So the number one was definitely the fact that if you want to think about your next product or your next marketing campaign, you need to understand the human motivation. What is the thing that you're fixing or solving for your uh, consumer, for, your per for the people that you're targeting? And the second thing was around artificial intelligence and the fact that it's already available out there and you really, if whether you're a small food brand or even a restaurant or and all the way to the largest CPGs out there, you can already leverage uh, artificial intelligence and solutions that will give you the data and this, this kind of insights in real time. And so one thing that we do at TasteWise is we're trying to democratize this data. So even if you're not a customer, you can just register on our, onto our um, website and get this data for free. Um, and obviously, if you need more complicated solutions, uh, we'll be there and, and we'll work with you. Uh, but if, if you're just a round-the-corner pizzeria and you want to know what are the top-trending dairy toppings or meaty toppings, this should be available. And, and that's what we have uh, on our website today. So if you want to take a look at the TasteWise website while you are listening to the show, it is TasteWise, one word, T-A-S-T-E-W-I-S-E dot I-O. So explain to us just very briefly, we, we hear so much about artificial intelligence. I don't know that we know exactly what that means. AI, you know, you think of the movies where AI is a, is a robot or an android. Artificial intelligence is something that learns. It's, you know, it sci seems sci-fi, but it's data-driven, and it's not actually a thing that's tangible in some respects. So... How would you describe artificial intelligence in this usage for somebody who doesn't know what it is? 
Yeah, it's pretty easy. You know, we already gave one example. We have 170,000 menus and they have 12 to 13 million menu items. And every week we need to go through each and every one of the menu items and see what is changing, what got off, what got in. Were the chefs adding a new meaty ingredient on pizza or was it a new dairy or actually have they replaced the crust with cauliflower? And so we train the machines to do a couple of things. Number one is to understand text or what we call NLU, natural language understanding. So when we see a sentence, we understand and we can break it apart. We know what is what is a dish, what is an ingredient, what is a diet, what is a, a descriptor, maybe it's a, te- a texture. And we need to train the algorithm or the, or the uh, machines to pretty much understand the same thing because they need to grow through so much data that human beings will never be able to do that manually. Another level of artificial intelligence is image recognition. There are billions of different images of people's eating and drinking. How can you train an algorithm to understand was a person there alone? Were they there with their uh, loved ones? Were they having a burrito on the go? Or were they actually having a sit-down dinner and having an amazing Mexican um, dinner? And from that, obviously, there is also contextual analysis and what we call predictive analytics. That's where it gets very exciting. Meaning, how can we, based on the past, forecast the future? And this is one of the most um, you know, um, fascinating uh, areas of computer, uh, cognitive computing, or what we call today artificial intelligence. Do you need to, to build into the algorithm the definitions and the descriptions of what it's looking for? Or can it see things and then sort of decide what they are. So today how much t- information do you have to give it so that it understands and how much of it is it learning? Yeah, so there is what it's called and I, I'll get technical, but it's interesting no, to understand. We're a tech show, so get, um, get techie. You know, there is supervised artificial intelligence, meaning that you need to train it and really give it directions. There is uh, semi-supervised, meaning sometimes we help it, sometimes it's autonomous, and there is unsupervised constantly learning but always today artificial intelligence needs to have a directive you you won't you can't just let it you know run and then it will find a way and solve your problems you really need to define really well what are what is the problem and constantly fit it with data sets that will help it improve and and, and understand whether or not this is um, the result you're getting is what you were actually hoping to get so it's a, it's a work in progress, and artificial intelligence in what we saw in sci-fi is still far, far away. So uh, we're still here to you know, help the algorithms work for us. So this is a good break point to find out who the sponsor is who's helping work for us. Did you know that Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit? And we keep 35 live shows on the air, the lights on and the mics hot, out of the generosity of underwriters like this one. Stay tuned. Today's program is brought to you by our neighbors, Fine and Raw Chocolate. They make bean-to-bar chocolate and confections in HRN's backyard here in Brooklyn. Fine and Raw is committed to sustainably sourcing their cocoa beans directly from organic cocoa farmers. They use minimal processing and stone grinding to accentuate chocolate flavor and aroma. Their chocolate is sweetened exclusively with unrefined coconut sugar, which blends delicious caramel notes into the chocolate. 
Crafted for chocolate lovers, all of Fine and Raw's bars, truffles, and spreads are 100% plant-based. From creamy bars blended with nut butter to salt-sprinkled dark chocolate, sweet truffle bars to toasty coconut dulce de leche, Fine and Raw is obsessed with creating next-level flavors. Their chocolate hazelnut butter made with the best Oregon hazelnuts is the best thing you could ever eat with a spoon. It begs to be drizzled on ice cream, waffles, strawberries, you get the idea. Above all, Fine and Raw is a community of people dedicated to the idea that chocolate is magic. Visit fineandraw.com for your chocolate fix. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. Sometimes we have live pitch shows with food tech startups who are looking for funding. Are you a food tech startup looking for funding? We are getting ready to do a live pitch show in July, on July 16th. Two very lucky companies will be able to do a live pitch to one of our guests from last week. His name is Josh, and he works at Rubicon Venture Capital. We're looking for two companies, one that's a food product, one that's restaurant tech software. We're looking for companies that are late seed, doing about a million in revenue. You can be located anywhere in the world, but the founders must be in studio in Brooklyn for the live broadcast. Is that you? Are you looking for money? Email us your deck, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org, and maybe we'll have you on the radio. That live show date is Tuesday, July 16th, 2019. But today's startup founder, entrepreneur, although you're a little past the startup stage, perhaps, although TasteWise is not that old. We're only two years old, so we're still a startup. Right. But you're still global. That's correct. You are already doing probably more than a million in business. I won't get into details. Okay. Fair enough. So Alan was just here, is here in New York City for the Fancy Food Show, giving a keynote talk about... AI and the future of food and how AI can predict trends. What are some of the trends that you're seeing right now based on your travels, based on your time at conferences, and based on the data from TasteWise? Yeah, so from culinary perspective, um, you know, we've talked about it already, but what, what really gets me excited these days is the macro level of how consumers are changing and how the market is really adapting to them. More specifically, virtual restaurants and ghost kitchens. When you think about it, people really um, are so conscious about their time, their schedules, their calendars. Even sometimes to book time with their loved ones, they need to schedule a slot on calendar. Um, yours truly as well. <laughs> and when you're so conscious about your time, you're, you know you might not cook as much and that's how food delivery is is skyrocketing it's booming worldwide 20 percent growth year over year more than 100 billion dollar business already and what's exciting is that with the with virtual restaurant being you know restaurants that do not have brick and mortar they only do food delivery and they only have presence on food delivery apps. And so when you have a virtual restaurant, you can get pretty much the same product to someone's house in less time. It will be better cooked for delivery because you only do delivery. And 
the most exciting part is that you can lower cost because you have less people working in a restaurant, less real estate to pay for. And this is really one of the most exciting domains today in the food industry. And really the, the one thing that can really solve a lot of the problems in the industry and more importantly, help the industry bridge between what we call the demand and supply. So I walked you know, in the meatpacking district and I saw an avocaderia the other day. And it's great because, you know, people love avocado and why not have, you know, a whole place for avocaderia. But people today love keto. It's one ketogenic diet was one of the fastest rising diets out there. And there's no reason why there wouldn't be so many ketorias on food delivery apps uh, tomorrow morning. I'm sure that anyone who's going to open uh, up a ketoria in, in where there is demand in the cities, in the zip codes, there, there, there is a demand. They can really first help people that are on ketogenic diet and also have a great business. So when you say virtual restaurants, you're essentially talking about a food commissary or a production space that is just making things for delivery. So not taking something from an existing restaurant. So the models are kind of hybrid at the moment. So you might have you know, a pizzeria that has a kitchen space that is not in full capacity and they can produce other dishes, but they're not a fit for the pizzeria, right? So they might want to make um, a different kind of uh, restaurant and it can be operated from an existing restaurant, but it can also be a ghost kitchen, a kitchen that is has never been a restaurant before, uh, still, you know, with the food safety needs of a, of, of a kitchen, of a, an industrial kitchen. But then you can build up whatever brand you want around it and you can change it, you know, as often as you'd like and the barrier to entry is much lower because if you need to take a physical space and set it up and, and you know, work on the branding and buy the, all the uh, furniture, it's going to cost you, you know, around half a million dollars in a good case. And with a virtual restaurant, you can start with $50,000. And all you need is some great photos and to be on a delivery website and put some pictures up and have the right search tags and you're ready to go. So... The most important part, and that's where we come in place, is actually to understand where is a need that is not being addressed. Where should I open this Kitoria? Because there is a for virtual restaurant, there is a meaning for where exactly geographically is the kitchen going to be placed because you want to get as fast as possible to your customers. So based on what you know from your AI and from traveling around, if you were going to open a Kitoria, where would it be? Probably around here, Brooklyn. Is a good uh, is a good uh, place to start. Okay, interesting. When you say that keto is on the rise, just in terms of the numbers, what does that mean in terms of the value? Is it the popularity growing ten percent, twenty percent? Is something going down? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we do see that um, most of the top diet or what was, you know, the prominent diets like vegetarian, vegan number one, vegetarian number two, um, right after clean eating um, and so on. All of those are actually maxed out and they're kind of declining. Um, now, it's not, it does not mean that people are not eating vegan food anymore, plant-based foods, but they're more into flexitarian uh, diets and they're replacing the diets that might be only vegan with a lot more particular diets like keto. So you can still be in a keto diet and be vegan, right? Um, and so it's very difficult. Though. It's very difficult, yeah. Um, and keto, re keto and, and uh, low-carb are the, the diets that are really booming at the moment. 
and they've been they've doubled in the past four months alone, whereas you know veganism and vegetarianism is actually going down. Interesting. So when you say it's doubled in the past four months, you're talking about the number of social media mentions or the number of downloads or the number of consumer queries or touch points that you're measuring. Yeah, so we basically measure um, social conversation to analyze that. And we're seeing that, uh, for instance, for every conversation that is, is including food and beverage, how what, what was the percentage mentioned veganism or vegan, plant-based? Some people actually call it cruelty-free. So there's a wide array of, of, uh, of keywords and terms that reflect people's um, you know, will to go on a, vegeta- a vegan diet. And so we measure that and we benchmark it versus uh, other diets. And then we slice and dice and tell you where is it happening exactly? Is it going down or up? What is happening for moms? Do they care about vegan diet as much? Or uh, what do people who are into fitness, do they care about uh, veganism or do they stick to the protein that they're used to? So fascinating. And when you're listening to, not when you're listening, but when you're looking and tracking all these different touch points, what are the, what are the principal channels that you're looking at? What are the, the ones that have the most interaction and engagement? So we're looking at everything from restaurant review sites that has a lot more depth in the, you know, the description of what is the, uh, what was happening and all the way to the Instagrams and the, and the Pinterest of the world. Fascinating. Is there anything that you can't look at because there's a barrier to it? Yeah, so obviously we only look at publicly available data. So mm-hmm. anything you could find on Google, we would look at. Um, so publicly available data is, is the key. So there's a lot we don't see. But from what we see, which is, you know, the hundreds of millions a month, is actually pretty sufficient to get to conclusions. It's so amazing how much is out there. It really is. It's kind of staggering. Especially in New York City, you see people taking photos all the time. Everyone is a photographer, their camera, their, their telephone, all those kinds of things. And all those photos are somewhere, right? There's just like billions and billions of photos, I'm sure, out there in storage and cloud and online and on phones and on drives that... Do, you, do we max out at some point in terms of how much data we can have? Or do we just keep making more things to store it and access it? It's funny. I was in uh, Greece that week for a friend's birthday, and we were laughing that you know we need to call Facebook to uh, you know to get more cloud space because we're taking so many pictures and videos. I think that there's progression, and and I think that uh, the big companies are um, pretty good at making sure that there's enough uh, cloud space for all of us. Is there a lim- Is there is there a limit to cloud space? I don't think so. It's like the Moore's law that you know the the, the amount of size you can. You can storage uh, data is is actually uh, increasing exponentially, so I wouldn't be concerned about that. Okay, well, not in my lifetime anyway. Maybe later. <laughs> you primarily are dealing with uh, enterprise companies and global companies and, and companies that are really at scale, and predominantly your your business is in the United States. But do you see a difference in terms of what people are interested in and the food trends from the United States and other parts of the world? Is global social media and a global conversation created a global point of view when it comes to food trends? Or is it still regional and geographical? Yeah, so definitely I think 
if you look at the east right the increase of intake of meat has increased so much you know uh, pretty much learning from the west and when you look at the most you know fascinating food trends of today's um, the US mar- in the US market you see actually very exotic stuff coming from the east so one of the things I love recently is ube you know the purple yes. yam Filipino mm-hmm. yes it's being added to ice creams to cheesecakes everything sweet basically and it's coming from the Filipino mm-hmm. and I think that there is there's something about you know products or ingredients coming from far east or from Middle East you know zatar for instance one of the my favorite spices that people feel they, they, they can trust you know so when you have when you have um, something purple and you know there is ube in it you feel that the colorant was actually um, natural, natural mm-hmm. and you trust the product more so I think that we're only going to see a lot more uh, you know um, steal and learn and copy uh, from each other which is amazing I was at a stand-up showcase for startups I think maybe last year last spring and the woman's company was a plant-based meat product. And in her stand-up, she talked about how plant-based diet and vegetarian and vegan diet is on the rise. And she was quoting some numbers and statistics. And it kind of made me laugh a little bit because it was such an American point of view. It completely discounted the entire countries and cultures outside of the United States that are primarily plant-based, vegetarian, vegan diets. You know, India, Italy, other parts of Asia. Very, very vegetarian, maybe not exclusively, but, you know, predominantly vegetable-based diets. And it's so interesting sometimes. I think the United States market is very, um, very blinded, very sort of siloed, and has an idea of when something changes here, it must be changing everywhere else when maybe we're importing something without really quite being aware of it. I think that the learning today is very mutual, right? So, and that's where, what's exciting about food. It's also connecting people from different places. And I think that the fact that um, a couple months ago we, we were released a food trends report and we, we said that Tzchug, which is a Yemenite condiment, uh, that we think is going to, you know, be as big as Sri Racha. It's made of out of um, green pepper with cilantro and garlic and cumin seeds, and it's very popular in the Middle East. And now it's rising in the American cuisine, being uh, sugar-free, low carbs, um, natural, 100% natural condiment. So people love it, and and I thought it was incredible. I'm a fourth Yemen, you know, in my. My dad's dad is Yemenite. And I think it's amazing that people in the U.S. sit and eat, you know, the Yemenite condiment. And, you know, it might uh, even bridge the different cultures and make, you know, um, make, help us see that we are all human beings and we can actually learn from each other and eat together and, and um, have fun. I wonder if Yemen is one of the 150 countries where we have listeners of Heritage Radio. Could be. I'd be hard-pressed, I think, to name 150 countries. Me too. (laughs) I always think about that every time I say, could I make a list of 150 countries? One of the interesting things about AI and machine learning is that it doesn't have any of those preconceived notions or stereotypes of, is ube Filipino or not? Do we have it all the time? Is it accessible? Is it something that you eat for breakfast or not? Or 
for dessert or not. Do you need sometimes to build in sort of social ideas or social cultural norms into the learning to get an idea if you're studying something like breakfast food? Or is it just what is breakfast food and then you just take what the net captures? Yeah, so definitely we need to understand first very carefully what is the question we're asking. Mm -hmm. And then based on the data, we need to be critical, you know, to is it really answering my question and is it really the right source? So a very well-placed question. And yeah, we are thinking constantly about the different use cases, the most common use cases of our, you know, large enterprise customers, but also mid-sized food brands, you know, that want to base their most critical business decisions on data and insights and not only their gut feeling what they've been you know or and on a report that they bought from a year ago that has data that is irrelevant for what is happening today so definitely there is a need to train artificial intelligence to not get biased and uh, that's something we we work on and and our data science team is is always busy making sure that we are not getting biased out there so you have had a a, a long career thus far in data and analytics, your time at Google. What was it about food data that caused you to create TasteWise? Of all the things that are out there that you could be looking at and listening to, why food trends? So the interesting part was that actually my mom is an amazing cook. And it always goes back to the mom being an amazing cook. <laughs> always. The mom or the grandma. She's from Iraqi origin, so she makes amazing food. And on a Shabbat dinner, you know, when we're all in, in Israel, we, she's inviting all of us for dinner, for Shabbat. And what I found was very interesting that every Wednesday, she's sending us a message in the family group that, you know, pretty the same people on the group. What is your new shtick? Or what is the new thing you're eating or not eating? And then I saw that all of us are changing constantly. You know, sometimes I'm pescatarian. Sometimes we try paleo. My sister-in-law is vegan mostly, but sometimes she's, she eats fish. And so my mom, you know, cooking and working so hard on, on having all of us together. And she wanted to make sure that we have something to eat. And so I found that if it got all the way to my family with the ever-changing, you know, needs and dietary diets and and um, conditions and so on and preferences, then it must be everywhere. And so, uh, very quickly, I, you know, I started talking with executives in the food industry, and I found out that most of them are still doing surveys. You know, they go to 100 <laughs> people that walk around the shopping mall and they give them a voucher of $100 and they ask them questions that they don't know the answers to. What is going to be the next focus flavor? Group. Or focus groups. Mm -hmm. You know, the market is so fragmented. There are so many people out there, so many needs and thoughts. And going and doing a survey didn't make a lot of sense in a $5 trillion uh, business. And so I realized that if it's happening in my family... These companies are still relying on very redundant, outdated, and, and slow to move uh, data sources. There must be a great uh, opportunity. And I'm a big foodie, always been cooking and, you know, um, fascinated by food trends and how food is becoming a lot more functional in our lives. And, you know, I treat it as a medicine. Um, apart from having to be always tasty, it also have to have a benefit of a sort. Well, you certainly picked the right time. 
to do something like that. As you said earlier, uh, food has never been more documented or more talked about or really entered into the global conversation about society and problem solving and food sources and feeding people. When you have the World Expo from, I guess it was two years ago now, right? The World Expo in Milan, which was 2017, I guess. It, the topic was food, was feeding the world. What is on the horizon for TasteWise? What are you thinking about building, looking at for the next six months, the next two years? Yeah, so we're definitely, you know, we're expanding the team because there's a lot of uh, business coming our way and we want to make sure that we keep giving service to the mid-sized businesses as well as the big ones. Um, so growing the team is one thing. And, and obviously, we, we will always get you know, more data sources and train our artificial intelligence on, on more unique cases so we can actually unveil what is the next food trend. We're definitely you know, super excited about the opportunity out there in the virtual restaurant space. So we're looking very carefully at that and helping businesses find out what is, what is the gap in the market in their area and how can they tap into it and create better food experiences for their customers. Fascinating. Really fascinating. Do you have an exit strategy or are you with TasteWise for the whole ride? We want to create value. You know, we're not thinking about exit. We want to make sure that we have the ability to keep building value and actually bettering the food industry. We haven't talked about, you know, much about sustainability and, and new, you know, needs. And, and people are a lot more conscious about the impact and the footprint they live on the on, on earth so there's a lot you know in personalization in health and sustainability that we that we want to tap into so we're not going anywhere excellent i always like it when founders don't have an exit strategy there's something about it to me that seems like they are so much more passionate invested in their business a lot of times when i hear founders who are very early stage talking about their exit that makes me think it's just sort of a project or an experiment or Something like that. Um. Yeah, so I think that being an entrepreneur, and I worked for a large company, right, before, uh, Google is not a startup. And no, I think one, of, one of the biggest almost, or at least it feels that way. Yeah, one, the one thing that my co-founder and myself, we're always saying that is we have to have fun and we have to enjoy the journey. So every day when we wake up, even if it's a tough day, we say, we, it's up to us to make it a, you know, to make lemonade out of the lemon. Okay. Well, I want to thank Alan for coming on the show, making time for us on his quick trip to New York. Definitely do keep us posted on your travels and what's happening and updates on the platform. It's just, just fascinating how much information is out there if you know where to look for it and asking the right questions about the same answer can bring you a very different point of view. If you're interested in taking a look at TasteWise, you can find them online, tastewise.io. If you are interested in listening to more Tech Bites, come in back and listen every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are live. After that, we are on demand at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, your favorite podcasting platform, and at heritageradionetwork.org. We are currently in the middle of our annual summer member drive. It's our 10th anniversary. We're going for a t another 10 more years. We keep the lights on 
mostly in part to our members who are listeners like you. If you go to the website, click on the beating heart, you can make a donation. You can designate it to Tech Bytes, and if you do that, I will send you something along with my undying love. And don't forget, we are having our live pitch show with Josh Siegel from Rubicon Venture Capital on July 16th. Two lucky startup founders will get to sit in the booth and pitch him live. We are looking for a food product and a restaurant software platform. So send us your decks, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. I think that's all we have time for. Come back and see us next week. We will have the amazing Nomad a CPU track by DJ Uptown Nico, our theme song to take you home. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.